welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. and take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 29 is the section of Scripture I just read to you. You might have noticed that this is the longest of the seven letters. If you're just joining us over the last few weeks, we're, we're working our way through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. This is Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where the Lord reveals to John these seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. And remember, these are things for all the churches. As you just heard a second ago, I've reminded you each week that these are for all of the churches, plural, to hear. And so this is specific churches that the Spirit of God is speaking to, but it's also for all the churches to hear and to learn from and understand. This is not just us snooping around in another church's business. This is the Lord helping us to understand what some folks struggle with and what we struggle with in our own hearts so that we too might walk in the way everlasting. If you're looking on the map, uh, imagine there's a map up here. I probably should have put one up there. There's one in the kids area, by the way, that has these on it. Uh, If you're looking at modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, we started along the GNC in Ephesus. Then we moved up to Smyrna. Last week, we went into uh, Pergamum. And this week, we're going to the Tyathira. And so we're kind of working our way now through this circle around Asia Minor. So that's kind of the way these letters are written. This is why there's maps in the back of your Bible. You can turn to the back of your Bible if you wish to see some of those maps. And to join us in Revelation, just flip flip a few pages more, and you'll find... Revelation chapter 2. And so the first church that the the Lord uh, writes to is the church of Ephesus. You might remember that they're theologically astute. They're hard workers, but they're cold in love. They've grown cold in their love for the Lord, love for each other, and love for a lost world. Smyrna, the Lord had nothing against them. They were poor, but really they were rich, for they were living their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. Last week we saw Pergamum. They were dwelling in a city where Satan dwells. Some were faithful, but some began to compromise. And so now as we work our way through Asia Minor, now we move to Thyatira, And now the Lord turns his eyes to Thyatira. We don't have a whole lot of details about how this church was founded. But we have heard of Thyatira before. You may remember a story, a true story in Acts chapter 16, when Paul was on his first, Paul was on one of his missionary journeys. Uh, Do you remember a a woman named Lydia? Do you remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16? She was a a woman, the Bible says, she, she feared God, but she had not yet come to believe in Christ. And she was down by the riverside, the Bible says, praying at a prayer meeting where Paul met them and preached the gospel. And Lydia and her household was saved. The Bible describes Lydia as a seller of purple goods. So she would dye uh, things purple. Purple was a very expensive dye. It was a luxury item. Uh, So she would dye wool and garments and things like that. So that was Lydia's job. She was a businesswoman. And when we meet her in Acts chapter 16, we find her in Philippi perhaps on a business trip of some sort. And I say a business trip because the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16 that Lydia, this dyer of purple goods who was in Philippi down by the riverside where Paul met her and she became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that she was from Thyatira. 
And so whatever the reason for her trip to Philippi, whether it was on a business trip or whatever, we know that the Lord had her there for a reason. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Uh, just side note, you're here for a reason. Someone prayed for you that you would be here this morning. You're now, and you're here now. What, what, what might God do in your life this morning? Nevertheless, there is Lydia. She believed that day. Perhaps this is just sanctified speculation, by the way. Perhaps it was Lydia who went back to her home city of Thyatira and told people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and a church was planted. I don't, I don't know if that's what happened, but I like to imagine that perhaps that's what happened. But regardless, I tell you of Lydia, because we've heard of Thyatira before, and that she's a seller of purple, because even her vocation points us back to Thyatira, something that we need to understand about Lydia's city, about the city that the Lord is speaking to in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. So let me tell you a little bit about Thyatira. Being situated in a valley, remember what Lydia did. This is going to come up here in just a moment. This will be crucial to understanding what the people of Thyatira were struggling with, the temptation that they had. Thyatira was situated in a valley. It was a city that lacked natural fortifications. A garrison was typically stationed there for its own protection, but mainly to slow down any enemies who were on their way to Pergamum, which I told you last week was the capital. So it was kind of a speed bump to the bigger city. So it was a smaller city. There, there wasn't much going on by way of beauty, by way of importance and prominence. There wasn't uh, uh, um, uh, emperor worship that went on. So it wasn't really a, a cultural center or a religious center as we saw in some of those other towns. It wasn't near the sea, so it wasn't a port city. So it didn't have the prominence of, of other cities. Nevertheless, it was well known, here it is, for its trade guilds among which would be the trade of dyeing purple goods, just like Lydia would have done. So maybe you understand what maybe Lydia was struggling with and some of the people in the city struggle with. Let's keep pushing into this. So there's these trade guilds, wool workers, linen workers, garment makers, dyers like Lydia, leather workers, potters, and the like. Before we say more about this, let's make this side note. Never underestimate knowing your, your, your city and your context and the place the Lord has, had, has you. That will help you understand kind of what you're navigating. For, for example, did you know that in Jefferson Parish that some, uh, some surveys say that Jefferson Parish is over 70% lost? Did you know that? that the fields are ripe with harvest. There's some 70% of people in Jefferson Parish that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do you know that about your city? Do you know the culture of your city and some of the things that your city might deal with and some of the temptations you might have in your city to compromise and to tolerate and not set, up, set yourself apart as the light of the world? Keep that in mind as we keep working through this. Maybe you're thinking this is a smaller and quieter town, Thyatira that no major temples and probably a smaller church. And maybe you're wondering, a church of Thyatira, does this small church really matter in the grand scheme of things? But, but here's the truth. Big city, small city, urban city, suburban city, rural city, big church, medium church, small church, tiny church, wherever you are dwelling, the Lord sees you. He calls you to be faithful there. The Lord is doing something in your midst that matters for eternity. He's doing that in Thyatira. So maybe you're thinking this church is smaller in a smaller city. Perhaps it doesn't matter. The Lord says, yes, this matters what's going on in that church. Big church, small church, tiny church, medium church. 
Maybe you're thinking, what's the struggle? So here's where we're getting with Lydia, the trade guilds and things like the church matters and, and know your culture, know, know what they're struggling with. This just seems like a small working person's town, a bunch of trade people doing things with their hands. But more than likely, here's the struggle of Christians in Thyatira. More than likely, the struggle revolved around the aforementioned trade guilds. Like I told you that even Lydia was probably a part of at some point. These guilds were associated with the worship of deities. In in, in other words, each guild had a patron, if you will, deity that was to be worshipped by the members of each guild. If you wanted to get ahead in Thyatira, you must belong to a guild. If you belonged to a guild, it was assumed that you worshipped that god. You must attend guild meetings and festivals that involved participating in the worship of this deity, part of which was eating food sacrificed to these gods, which would be seen as a public acknowledgement that you believe that your sustenance came from that god. After the feast, grossly immoral activity, as you see mentioned, as you heard me read in this morning here to this church in Thyatira. So after the feast, grossly immoral activity would follow. It was more than a company Christmas party. You were participating in the worship of another God and giving yourself over to the things that Scripture clearly forbids. Now understand that Paul even talks about this in like his letter to the Corinthians, that for some of you, it's a stumbling block to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Some of you, it's no big deal. And, and so how do we navigate this? We know in that city, in that culture, to eat that food sacrificed to God, you were proclaiming something. And there was no way around it. Maybe in another city, it might have meant something else. But in that city, it meant that you tolerated those gods, that you bowed down to those gods, that it was okay to worship other gods. It's important to know the context that you're in. It's important to know your city that you are in. It's important to know the local context and to know what your life is proclaiming lest you tolerate things that the Lord doesn't tolerate, lest you find yourself caught up in the culture that your city is and you find yourself worshiping the things that other people worship. You know, I was, I was thinking, of, it is tough to navigate. It's tough to navigate even towns like this. And, you know, I've heard people talk about, maybe you've heard this before, like Mardi Gras before. Like, you go down to those parades, you say, Hail Toth, or whatever else, that you're worshiping those gods. And, and, and we know locally that's not what we're doing. We're just trying to get some doubloons and beads and some things like that. We're not really worshiping those gods. But if that were the case, that we were saying that we believe in the God of Toth and he is the one that's going to save us. And if we're saying that by going to those praise, then, then there's a problem with that. But we know in our local context that we're just wanting to eat some fried chicken and castle burgers and, and catch some beads and some things like that. That's all we're looking to do and have a good day with the family. But in this context, it meant something completely different. Now, I'm not saying morality is black and white, but and there's gray areas and things like that. But what I'm saying is the situation can be difficult. We need to know our, our culture. They knew that if they quit the guild, you lose your position. You're standing in society. You're ridiculed and mocked. You find yourself in the path of suffering and hunger and persecution. Maybe you know that as a Christian sometimes that if you stand up for certain things, that you will find yourself isolated. If you don't tolerate certain 
things that the Bible clearly forbids, and you will find yourself ostracized. You will find yourself outside of social circles. And so we need to ask ourselves the question as we're working our way through this, this church in Thyatira and the warning that we give, are, are, are you bowing down to, to idols of, of, of the culture? It might look like all sorts of things. Are you giving your life away just so that you fit in to a certain culture? Are you giving your life away for the gospel of Jesus Christ? The situation was difficult, and the Christian has to ask, can I tolerate this? Or how tolerant can I be? That's the big word for the church in Tyathira, tolerance. I don't have to maybe tell you many parallels today, but the word of our age is, is tolerance. You must tolerate everything, and if you don't tolerate, then you won't be tolerated. You're out. Everybody can believe what they want, but if you don't believe like the world and behave like the world and don't defer, affirm the ways of the world, you are out. So that's the struggle of the church of Thyatira. It's much like the struggle you and I face today to be in the world and not of the world. So where's the first place we need to look? Hopefully you understand this as we've been going through those letters. The first place we need to look is to Christ. Verse 18. And the angel of the church of Thyatira writes, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished Bronze. So first we look to Jesus, and, and so Jesus, get your eyes on me. This comes from the vision of the resurrected Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Here's what I want you to see, church in Thyatira. I want you to see that I am the Son of God, that this description stresses Christ's deity, his oneness with the Father. He is the one who is divine. He is the one who is powerful. He is the divine judge. In a world demanding these Christians to bow down to other gods, Jesus is reminding them, make no mistake, church, that I am God, that I am divine. I am the only one who is worthy of worship. And I alone am worthy of worship. There is no other that Jesus is no lifeless idol, but the very Son of God who is alive forevermore. So get your eyes on Christ, the one who is alive, the one who is God, the one whose eyes or like flaming fire. So understand this church in Thyatira who is struggling with this idea of tolerance that you'll see in a moment, that Christ is all-knowing. He sees our deeds, our thoughts, our intentions, our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees through false teaching and deceptive appearances and seductive teaching. There is nothing outside of his sight, nothing that will Remain hidden from his sight. He knows our hearts. So one be encouraged and one be warned that if you bow down to these gods, he sees that. And know that he has burnished bronze feet. What does that mean? Well, in a city of trade guilds, this would probably spark something. The bronze workers would say, man, what, what does that mean? That, that he's strong, that he's glorious, his splendor, his coming judgment he is strong, he is steady, he is sure, and his truth alone will prevail. And he is stable and you can trust him. Christ is 
holy. Christ sees. Christ knows. He's stable. You can trust him. Set your life on the one you can trust. The truth that does not change. The truth that is our foundation. Don't set your life on the sinking sand of the trade guilds and the culture of your day. Do you see it? Get your eyes on Christ. Get your eyes on Christ. Now let's see what this church is going through. You already know the context already, so this will come naturally a little more to you as you as we read through this. First, the church is commended. First, the church is commended for what the Lord sees. Look at verse 19. And I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And so he sees something good about this church, doesn't he? He sees that indeed their light is shining, that they were working with love and faith and service. And the persecution, there are some folks among them that are patiently enduring. They're not bowing down to the gods of their age. In fact, the Bible says that they're growing. Do you see what it says there? That their, their latter works exceed their first. They're, they're growing. And you'll see something about the church of Tyrathyra is that they're, they're kind of the, the, the mirror of, of Ephesus. Do, do you remember Ephesus, that they are, they're theologically strong, right? But they're cold in love. They worked and toiled, but they had no love. This is, this is not true for Thyatira. The Bible tells us that your love and faith and service are noticeable. So perhaps you could say about this church that, that it's a warm church. Not, not lukewarm like we'll see later in some of these letters that they're indifferent, but they're, they're warm. It's a, it's a kind of church that, that when you walk into it, it's almost like you feel a hug, right? You know those people care about you. You know those folks love you. And I, I, I hope that we're, we're a warm church. That's a, a wonderful thing that we grow in our warmth to, to those who are among us and those who come into our, our midst. But... They lacked something, as we will see. They had love, but they were weak in, in truth. Ephesus lacked love, but was theologically stout. They, were, they had truth without love. And the church at Thyatira, they have love without truth. And love without truth is, is fragile. Here's how one theologian describes this. Love without truth is sentimentality. Love without truth is just sentimental. That's what the church at Thyatira was struggling with. It supports and affirms us. It tolerates, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love, like Ephesus, is harsh. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love, the gospel, God's saving love in Christ Jesus, however, is marked both by truth and love. It's grace. He loves us so much that he gave his son. He's truthful about our condition that he had to die for us. You were a sinner. And while you were yet sinner, Christ died for you. The Bible is honest with us that we were so bad that Jesus had to die for us. There's no other way. And the Bible is 
so hopeful because he gladly did it for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. So understand this, while the church in Ephesus was struggling with love, the church at Thyatira was not struggling with love. They're struggling with truth, and we see that in their correction. So they are commended. They're growing in love, but this love is fragile because they're tolerating this false teacher, Jezebel. Let's take a look in verse 21 and 22. So the church is commended. We saw in verse 19, verse 21 and 20 and 21, the church is corrected. Let's take a look. But I have this against you. Here's that word that you tolerate. Tolerance is the struggle there. Tolerating sin and tolerating other worship and, and not standing up for truth and feeling that you'll be ostracized if, if you tolerate everything. Not about be loving towards people. They got that down, but be able to be honest about things that are destroying people. Not out of hate, but that when we tolerate sin, we don't tell people about the grace of Jesus Christ that will restore and redeem them and keep them from destroying themselves because sin destroys. I get ahead of myself. Let me read this again. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Remember the, the trade guilds and the, the worship afterwards and all of that that goes along with worship and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I told you about the context of that a second ago. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So now the church is corrected and the correction that the Lord gives them is that they tolerate Jezebel. My wife asked me last night, what church are we learning about? And I told her about the church of Thyatira. What about that church are we going to learn about? I said, that was the Jezebel church. I said, oh, Jezebel, that's never a good thing. When you hear the word Jezebel, I'm sorry if your name's Jezebel. Um, <laughs> I apologize. But typically when you hear that, it's not necessarily a good thing because remember the, the, the person Jezebel. Now, now what's going on here? is there's probably a real false teacher in this city, probably this, this woman who is under the name of, of Jezebel. So they're being described kind of in this, uh, this, this code language, this descriptive language, just like we saw in the, in the last letter that the teaching of Balaam, Balaam wasn't really there teaching, but it echoed the teaching of Balaam. So the actions of this false prophet is, is echoing the actions of Jezebel. So the church at the time, I know Jezebel, oh, I know what to look for, not just in that individual, but those who come after that are, are like her. So let's remember Jezebel. Her, her name in the Bible is synonymous with seduction and idolatry. She was vile, a vile woman whose influence to Israel was the worship of false gods. You remember Jezebel was the one that Elijah was fleeting from. Remember the Mount Carmel where he, he calls down the, the fire on the altar and we see that the gods of Baal are not true and and there we see the, the God of, of Israel prevail over the gods of Baal and all the prophets of Baal are slain. It was, it was Jezebel who brought those prophets in. So Elijah has to hightail it because Jezebel wants to kill him for taking out her prophets because she was a worshiper of Baal. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab in Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings that Ahab, the son of Amri, began to reign over Israel and it goes on to say about Ahab that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him 
as if it was a light thing, he took to the sins of Jeroboam. But even more, the Bible says the worst thing he did was took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Because when Jezebel was married to Ahab, he tolerated her gods and brought the gods to Israel. Then Israel began to worship all of these false gods. Ahab probably married her out of this power move to make himself acceptable to these other nations. But when we tolerate other gods, it turns out it destroys all parties involved as it was detrimental to Israel. And so this is who Jezebel was. She brought in false worship to Israel. So this Jezebel is teaching among you. And what was this Jezebel teaching? It says, it says here that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's likely that it's, it's much like Jezebel was doing in the Old Testament. She was teaching this false prophet that it was okay to tolerate the lifestyle of Thyatira. She was likely teaching that participating in the immoral worship in the guilds would in no way defile you. It's okay to do that. In fact, it goes on to say that some call this the deep teachings of Satan. So perhaps she was teaching something like this, though we're not taught outright, but it was, it was something along these lines that somehow you can compartmentalize the sacred and the secular. You can go on living like the world and that will not affect you. You can go down and plumb the depths, the deep things of Satan and participate in all of the things of the world and remain unscathed by it. And she had convinced them, yes, we can get along just fine with all the, without all the suffering, without all the ostracizing, with all of it. We can get along in this world just fine and look just like the world and be okay. Jesus himself even says that's not so. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're sent into the world. John 17 tells us this, this passage we prayed through. But we're to be holy as he is holy. And so this woman Jezebel, perhaps to bring fame to herself, she's seducing them, telling them they can partake in all of these things and remain unscathed, just like some might teach today, whether they're in or outside of the church. Let's consider a few things about Jezebel. We know who she was in the Old Testament. We know her teaching was kind of plumbing. It says later on in this, in verse 24, the deep things of Satan. Notice the first a couple things that can help us identify a teacher like this. She's self-affirming in her authority. She calls herself. You see what it says here? That the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. This is not anybody the church had set apart. This is a leader, whether male or female, who sets themselves apart, who says, I have authority without others saying, yes, God has called you to that. Even in our churches today, we want people with self-affirming authority. We want people who are called by God, not called by self. To be a pastor is not to be on staff at a church. It's a calling from God. Just because you're on staff at a church doesn't mean you're a pastor or a prophet or whatever else. We don't self-affirm. We're called by God. So she calls herself. Her teaching is seducing people away from the things of God. And number three, it's seducing them to immorality. So how do we see false teachers? They're self-affirming in their authority. 
They're after personal gain. And they're calling people away from God himself. So beware of personality-driven leaders. Beware of self-promoting leaders. Beware of leaders with poor theology that doesn't line up with Scripture and somehow proclaims that if you follow my teaching, you have some sort of enlightenment and that you know better than the Bible, that you can plumb the deep things of Satan, as they say. Beware of leaders with poor morals that call you away from the holiness that God has called us to. So here's the warning. The warning is don't believe the Jezebels. Don't believe them. They'll draw you away, they'll seduce you, and you'll find yourself in this situation. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, who partake in those that worship, I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. He has the eyes, the flaming eyes. He searches mind and heart. And I will give each of you according to your works. So that's the warning that God sees this. He knows this, that God will judge and Jezebel will meet her demise. She will be judged fairly according to her works. She will be judged fully. She will be thrown into the deathbed and she will be removed once and for all. The warning to the church, maybe you can understand it like this, you become what you worship. The Bible is clear about that. The psalmist tells us that you become what you worship. If you want to worship idols, you'll become lifeless like idols. The only way to have true life is to worship the one true God, the Son of God, who is alive forevermore. And only in worship of Him will you have life. If you worship idols that do not speak, that do not talk, that are not alive, the Bible says you will become just like them and you will meet your demise as well. So this warning... And this call to repentance is not saying that you're saved by your works, because notice it says each of you will be judged according to your works. We all know that we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through the finished work of Christ alone. But it does mean that the saved will bear fruit in keeping in repentance, that our deeds will reveal our spiritual condition. If we have deeds like Jezebel, that's revealing a spiritual condition. And so the Lord warns, Thankfully, that's not the end of the story, right? He calls us to repent. Never miss this. That God's call to repentance, this is truth and love, right? That you have an issue, and in love, God calls us to repent. He doesn't say you're doomed. Yeah, you're doomed if you don't repent because you'll become like this. But if you turn to him, you will have life. This is hard for for kids to understand, isn't it? That I promise you, if you stop doing this and turn the other way, your life will go so much better. For a kid, that sounds like you're trying to keep them from joy and you're some sort of cosmic killjoy. I find in my own heart, I treat the Lord like that sometimes, right? That I'm going one way and he sees my heart, he knows my heart. I'm going in the way it could be of Jezebel. He calls me to repent and I can say, how dare you not tolerate this sin in my life? Or I could say... Praise Jesus, for you stopped me in my tracks. I heard your warning. I had ears to hear, and you turned me around that I might have life in your name. Praise Jesus that he calls us to repent. You know, the Bible says if we repent repent and turn to him, times of 
refreshing will come in his name. Refreshing. It's refreshing to repent. Be refreshed, people of Thyatira. Turn from your ways. But to the rest of Thyatira, so here's the promise. Here's what their rest will look like. Who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Just keep holding fast until I come. And the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. So keep following me no matter the cost, Thyatira. Grow in your love and and keep on in the truth. To him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with a them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So he says, here's the promise. Do not tolerate the sins of Jezebel. Do not tolerate the teachings of Jezebel. Just keep holding fast. And in that way, then you'll be more than conquerors. Don't try to conquer the culture by being like the culture and tolerating, but shine as lights and he will give you authority over the nations and you will rule with a rod of iron. I love what Robert Murray McShane says about this passage. He says, I don't know what this is. This rod of iron, these earthen vessels. He says, I don't know what this means, but I know it'll be glorious. I think it means that in the, in the new heavens and earth, we'll, we will rule and reign in the kingdom with the Lord. The Bible promises that. Then we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think it gives us hints of the great commission that the Lord has all authority. So he says, go with my authority and preach the gospel to all nations, for I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. So he says, if you want to be more than a conqueror, don't tolerate the teaching of Jezebel. Live as lights. And then that's when you will see the authority that I have given you, the one that the Father has given me and that I have commissioned you with. And here's the ultimate promise. And I will give him the morning star. This is none other than Christ himself, that you will receive the greater reward. You will receive Christ himself, and you will be with him forevermore. Christ himself is waiting for you. The one who loves you, who gave his life for you. The one who saved you, the one who calls you. The one who justifies you, the one who sanctifies you. The one who will glorify you. That's when you will see the approval of Christ, the power of Christ, and the presence of Christ. So what? Navigating life is not easy. Navigating culture is not easy. It wasn't for Thyatira. It's not for you and I here today. It is difficult with so many demands placed on us. Are we tolerating? Are we compartmentalizing? Are we compromising? Are we doing this of fear not fitting in? Or are we being salt and light in a world that is lost and dying? May God give us clarity to realize three things. That Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan, so we are not to tolerate it. John says this in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Jesus came to, restore, to, to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So God, give us the grace to understand that. May God give us a grace to see his love that... 
We are his children and so we are. 1 John chapter 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And we know that when he, hit, when he does appear, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. God, give us the ability, give us the grace to behold the love of Christ, that we are his children, and that we need to renew our hope. Get our eyes on him. He is coming back, and he will transform me from one degree of glory to the next. And finally, I shall be like him, for I shall see him as he is. God, get our eyes on that day. And God, get our eyes on the truth. Not only that we aren't to participate in sin, because Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan, not for us to plumb the deep works of Satan as Jezebel did, to see his love, that he has made us children, that we're loved and he's transforming us, And the third, so what, is help us to see that we are different. And that's a good thing. Jesus says this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, Jesus says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So Jesus wasn't of the world. That's a good thing. For he was able to save us. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in this truth. So God, help us to see the seriousness of sin. Help us to see the depths of his love. And help us to see that we are sent into a lost and dying world as lights to be different from the world so that they might see Christ And in seeing Christ, they might behold him and be transformed like him, by him, just as you and I have been. Let's pray.